Let us pray. For this place and for this day, we give you thanks, O God. We thank you for the work and dedication of faculty, staff, and students who came before us. Build in us a sense of respect for the tradition of excellence upon which we stand. We thank you for the college and community of today. Fill those who teach with wisdom and wonder. Grant students diligence and attentiveness in all they do. Inspire coaches and conductors to lead with joy and passion, that together we may walk gently and live confidently in the sureness of your grace. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the opening convocation that marks the true beginning of this academic year. I'd offer a special greeting to everyone who is joining us via uh, the live stream or the archive stream from all over the world. We're glad you can also be with us this morning. I have the honor now to introduce our student speaker, Rachel Palermo, who is the president of the Student Government Association. She's majoring in political science and economics with an emphasis on public policy. Rachel's been involved in student government as a Hall Senator, Senate Subcommittee Chair. Last year, she served on the executive team as coordinator of the Political Awareness Committee. She's been a Manitou Messenger editor and co-founded organizations focused on immigration reform and foreign policy. She serves on the executive board of the Political Science Honor Society, Pi Sigma Alpha, and she's the assistant coach of Northfield High School's speech team. Some of Rachel's most meaningful experiences, she reports, as a St. Olaf student, have come from interim opportunities. As a sophomore, she created an internship through the political science department and shadowed 20 Twin Cities lawyers, many of them Oles. During interim 2014, she lived with her grandparents in the Lebanese village where her mother grew up and conducted an independent study on the influx of Syrian refugees into Lebanon. Rachel has interned in Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Department of Justice, and she spent this past summer, again in Washington, interning for the political consulting firm Precision Strategies. Post-graduation, she plans to pursue careers, that's plural, in the fields of public policy and law. Please welcome Rachel Palermo. Hello everyone, and to the seniors, happy last first day of classes. My first day of kindergarten, my mom got in her car and followed my school bus all the way to my class so she could hug me again. And here she is today sitting in the front row, so I guess we've come full circle 16 years later. <laughs> and first, following up with what President Anderson said, I would like to start by saying hello to my mom's side of the family who is watching this on live stream across the world in Lebanon right now. So to my grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, hello from St. Olaf and the United States. Now, I'm honored to welcome all of you back to the 2014-2015 school year. Although you were probably ready for summer to come just a few months ago, especially when final papers and exams made it seem like there was no end in sight, I hope that you were excited to return for another great year. 
My favorite thing about campus in the fall is that it's always filled with hugs, laughter, and sharing stories about summer endeavors. Summer endeavors. And for the first years, I'm sure that some of you have been counting down the days to start the journey of your college experience. And yes, a year from now, that will likely be you running across the quad, screaming with excitement as you reunite with your friends for the first time in what seems like forever. And that brings me to the two areas that I would like to address today. The incredible people that we have the privilege of living and learning with during our time as students here, and the network that our community gives us for the rest of our lives. St. Olaf is a very unique place. I personally didn't realize how lucky we are here until I spent my first summer in Washington, D.C. last year. I would share stories with my friends from schools across the country about how my greatest memories at St. Olaf involved staying up until 3 a.m. discussing issues such as economic inequality or women's rights across the world. I explained how important social justice is to Oles and how highly we value civic engagement in our communities. We don't go to college just to make money after graduation. We come to learn how to use our gifts and our talents to make a difference in the world. Each time I meet a new person on campus, I'm amazed and impressed at their academic achievements, which are in addition to the organizations, leadership roles, volunteer activities, sports, and choirs that they dedicate time to. And despite the busyness of our lives here, Oles are always willing to take a moment to help each other out and to discuss important issues with genuine curiosity. It seems like just yesterday that Maggie Madsen at admissions was interviewing me for the spot in the class of 2015. She kept saying, you seem like an Oli, but I had no idea what that meant. But now that I've been here for three years, I'm so proud of the meaning behind her words. Now, just as important as the students and the faculty we are surrounded by during our four years on the Hill is the network of incredible people that we have for the rest of our lives. Whenever you meet someone from our community anywhere outside of campus, you find a special bond that, because you both share the St. Olaf experience. From the suburbs of Minnesota to countries across the world, you will encounter Oles, and you'll be excited to talk about old traditions and new aspects of campus life. Furthermore, Oles meeting away from campus become mentors, coworkers, and most importantly, friends. And to illustrate the beauty of the St. Olaf Network, here are a few examples of what I've been fortunate enough to experience the St. Olaf bond during my experiences in DC. Two summers ago, I connected with an Oli attorney at the US Department of Justice, and she helped me to secure an internship within her division. The entire summer was filled with learning, mentoring, and most importantly, sharing stories about our Hill memories. The following summer in Washington, an Oli family let me live with them for three months rent-free. The Millers knew little about me other than our St. Olaf connection, but they welcomed me into their home to have the experience of a lifetime. But this was not a rare occurrence. Half of my Oli friends lived in DC with alumni families from St. Olaf. They not only tolerated us in their homes, but they welcomed us into their families. Now, these examples only begin to paint the picture of the St. Olaf network. One of the greatest things about the connections that Oli's make outside of campus is how well-intentioned the acts of kindness are. Oli's rarely ask for anything in return. And Oli, I'm proud to call my mentor and friend, Lynn Anderson, told me something two years ago as I thanked her for helping me with career-related advice. She told me to pay it forward. And I can't wait for the day that I'm able to help others who I know nothing about other than the fact that we're both Oli's because that's the culture of, of St. Olaf graduates. Now, you may be wondering why I decided to discuss the St. Olaf community during a time when I've been asked to welcome you to the new year. But I shared these words for you all to remember what's truly important to us. 
In five, 10, 20, even 50 years, you won't remember that exam that you may have done poorly on or that campus position you didn't get. But you will remember the friends you've made, the professors who invited your class over for lunch, and those late night philosophical conversations in your dorm room lounge. Never forget that the people are what makes this community and your experiences so incredible. So whether you are starting your senior year or you're just beginning your St. Olaf journey, embrace every aspect of the St. Olaf bubble. We are surrounded by involved, talented, ambitious, and genuinely kind people during our time here. And our community grows more diverse by the year. People are coming from a wider range of backgrounds, bringing with them more perspectives, opinions, and ideas. When you find yourselves becoming stressed, which may happen at some point during the next year or the next few years, remember how lucky we are to share this experience with each other. St. Olaf is not only a college, but we are a family that lasts for the rest of your life. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. I now call upon the Provost and Dean of the College, Dr. Marcy Sorter, to introduce our faculty speaker. Thank you, David. It is my pleasure to introduce today's faculty speaker, Diana Postlewaite. Dr. Postlewaite joined St. Olaf's Department of English in 1988 after teaching at Yale the University of Chicago, and Mount Holyoke College. A highly productive scholar, during her time here, she has served as chair of the Department of English, and in 2006 to 2009, held the prestigious Bolt Chair. Diana Postlewaite's expertise is English literature from the Victorian era. Now don't think of suppressed ladies fainting because their corsets are too tight. The Victorian era was a boisterous time of new technologies, rapidly growing wealth, expanding empires, new political philosophies, and new visions of the social order and relations between the sexes. England was at the center of this churning, boisterous, creative, and sometimes destructive time. Perhaps then it makes sense that our speaker has teaching interests that reach as far back as Jane Austen to film studies, which she helped to establish here at St. Olaf. Today, Professor Postlewaite will speak on the fiction universe. Please join me in, joining, in welcoming Diana Postlewaite. I should have known when Marcy was introducing me today that I could count on a good historical introduction to my favorite era of literature, which I will talk a little bit more about in my talk today as well. It's really an honor to be standing here today as we begin to recreate the St. Olaf universe. This summer, I went back to college and a St. Olaf student took me there. Of 250 people gathered on the campus of the University of Santa Cruz in California last month, I arrived knowing nobody but Natalie, my fellow Oli. I moved into a Spartan dormitory room, ate in a crowded cafeteria, and faced that anxious moment of finding somebody to sit with at every meal. 
I attended lectures and classes, sometimes wildly inspiring, occasionally slightly boring. I suffered insomnia from loud parties next door, crowded with cool looking people who seemed already to have been friends forever. Almost everybody I met wanted me to tell, their, wanted to tell me their story, to ask me, where are you from? Why are you here? Although I've been teaching at St. Olaf for 26 years, I like to think that this fall, I share a particular empathy with what many of you sitting here today are feeling as you arrive at college for the very first time. So where was I and how did I get there? Here's my story. Two years ago this fall, a first year Oli showed up in my office hours. Natalie wasn't in any of my classes, she just wanted to introduce herself. Natalie told me that she had recently returned from something called the Dickens Universe, held each August at the University of Santa Cruz. During her senior year of high school, this enterprising young woman from Ohio learned about the conference on the internet. Every year, one novel by the great novelist Charles Dickens was selected, and people gathered for six days to talk about that single book. Undergraduates, graduate students, professors, and anybody else of any age who loved Dickens and wanted to come. There was a high school essay contest associated with the conference. Natalie entered, won, and got a free trip to the Dickens universe in 2012. Since then, she's gone back on her own the next two summers. The Dickens universe is awesome, Natalie told me that day we met. You should go, and so I did. Natalie, are you out there? Natalie, Natalie, are you there? If you're out there somewhere, there she is. Thank you, Natalie, for taking me someplace I've never been. And I think one of the great things that all of us faculty can say is that's something that happens all the time, and it's one of the best things about being a St. Olaf professor. Just as my recent experiences with dorm rooms and calf food reminded me of St. Olaf, so did what went on in those California classrooms and lecture halls. Strangers quickly came to feel like classmates and friends. Like our conversation cohorts at St. Olaf, we Dickens Universe folk were a learning community. We'd, eagerly we'd all eagerly chosen to be there and we'd all read the same book, which happened to be our mutual friend this year. How cool was that? For the remainder of my talk, I want to shift to a somewhat different analogy some ways that my experience at the Dickens universe resonates with what I'm calling today the fiction universe, a place that started coming into existence this morning in classrooms at St. Olaf College. Now, I'm not here to claim that these kinds of things only happen in English classes. That's just where I'm privileged to experience them. This fall in my department, for example, you can enter the Shakespeare and his contemporaries universe or the Black and Asian British Literature Universe, or the Hemingway and Faulkner Universe, or the Literature and Film Universe. Every semester, every classroom at St. Olaf becomes a universe. When I look back at classes I've taught here, several books find their way onto many of my syllabi, whether it's first year writing or a senior seminar. I've picked three of these great 19th century novels to touch upon today during the remainder of my talk. Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Each transports us to a wonderful alternative universe, and at the same time, each can teach us things rich and wise about the St. Olaf universe on the hill. Many of you here today may have read these novels. All of them fall into a genre with a big German name, Bildungsroman. 
The reliable scholarly source Wikipedia defines Bildung Roman as, quote, a novel of formation, novel of education, coming of age story, a literary genre that focuses on the psychological and moral growth of the protagonist from youth to adulthood, unquote. Our literary landscape is still densely populated by Bildungsromanen. Rollbog Library's bridge catalog lists 526 books with the word Bildungsroman in the title. And the list of popular Bildungsromanen on the website Goodreads reads like a who's who of young adult literature. Catcher in the Rye, To Kill a Mockingbird, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Harry Potter, and The Hunger Games. Have any of, you any of you read one of those books? Anybody out there? Raise your hand. You've read a Bildungsroman, and maybe you didn't even know you were doing it. It's easy to see how the Bildungsroman plot, a novel of education, a coming-of-age story, could have things in common with the life of a college student. In the spirit of what happens in the English department fiction universe, I now want to take us on three imaginative trips to a Regency ball in the early 1800s, where variations of pride and prejudice pattern the dance on a coach ride to Victorian London as a young man of great expectations leaves home for the first time, and finally to the laboratory of an overly ambitious university student who learns that creating a monster won't earn him an A. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice, a novel about 20-somethings living in a geographically and socially constrained environment filled with traditions, social rituals, and thrilling opportunities for meeting new people could readily be adapted to a college campus. But its female hero, Lizzie Bennet, has only one plot available to her, courtship and marriage. At the Netherfield Ball, dance partnerless Lizzie is snubbed resoundingly when she overhears the dashing and arrogant newcomer, Mr. Darcy, saying, there is not another person in the room who it would not be a punishment to me to stand up with. Thus begins the tale of Darcy's pride and Lizzie's prejudice, both of which must be overcome for a happy ending. Austen's comic novel delights in showing both its characters and its readers that all is not what it seems. Till this moment, I never knew myself, Lizzie finally says in chapter 36. Lizzie and Darcy get their happy ending because they are able to withstand mutual mortification and to acknowledge their character flaws. So what can we take from Netherfield Hall to Manitou Heights? Nothing life-threatening or soul-destroying happens to Lizzie Bennet, yet hers is a novel of true education, a story about making snap judgments and then taking a second or a third or a fourth look at what you thought you knew. Such plots can be played out in a classroom as well as in a ballroom. Charles Dickens' hero, Pip, in Great Expectations, has much in common with many college students. He leaves his rural, working-class family behind and moves to a new place to better himself. But what does Pip do in London? He gets a roommate, a guy named Herbert Pocket, and a cool apartment. He joins a fraternity of sorts, a club called the Finches of the Grove. He enjoys parties, and he gets into debt. But to speak <laughs> metaphorically, partying Pip neglects to enroll in classes or to do any homework. Despite the entitlements of being male and inheriting a mysterious fortune, Pip's education seems even more limited than Lizzie Bennet's unfolding under the constraints of a predetermined Dickensian melodramatic plot. But Great Expectations is a Bildungsroman, too. At the end of volume one, as Pip leaves for London, he says, quote, the world lay spread before me. 
This is Dickens' deliberate echo of the famous closing line of John Milton's retelling of the Genesis story, Paradise Lost. And the last line of Paradise Lost is, quote, the world lay all before them where to choose. Each of us, like Pip, must leave behind the innocent paradise of childhood and travel into adulthood, the realm of experience. A world of choice lies all before us, as it did for Adam and Eve. Possibilities for learning, growing, doing great and good things. But here's the downside. We can't go home again. The exit from Eden is a one-way street. My favorite line from Great Expectations belongs to Joe Gargery, the childlike blacksmith married to Pip's shrewish sister, a man who loves Pip with all his heart. Joe visits the new gentleman Pip in London, and snobbish Pip is ashamed of this country bumpkin. As he leaves, Joe says to Pip, life is made of ever so many partings welded together. Life is made of ever so many partings. Well, isn't that a great metaphor for a blacksmith? Very, very appropriate. <laughs> Going out into the great world of adulthood will change us forever, and not necessarily for the better. Ironically, we only realize we were in paradise once we've left it behind, paradise lost. Pip's ending is more somber than Lizzie's. Growth, but also loss, comes along with the journey from innocence to experience. And finally, there's that Frankensteinian homicidal monster, like a bad term paper stitched together out of borrowed parts. <laughs> I couldn't resist. No sooner does Victor Frankenstein flip the switch than his creation runs amok. Ironically, Frankenstein's monster is better read than Lizzie or Pip. Go figure, Paradise Lost just happens to be his favorite book. The monster identifies with Milton Satan, telling his deadbeat father, quote, remember I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather thy fallen angel. As Dr. Freud would say, that homicidal monster rage goes back to the monster's traumatic childhood. <laughs> it's all your fault, Dad. You didn't love me. So here's my Olafian take on the Frankenstein universe. In chapter five, Victor sets the scene for reanimation. I saw the eye of the creature open. What I find fascinating here is that Victor tells us that he had, quote, selected the monster's features to be beautiful. But the instant the monster comes to life, Victor sees him as hideous. Quote, now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Before we create something, we imagine it, and we have high hopes for it. That blank computer screen is a receptacle for the most brilliant and beautiful paper you've ever planned to write. But hit the print button, hold it in your hand, and the reality will never live up to your dream. Creation is exhilarating, and creation is also inevitably disappointing. There's another even darker operative principle in the Frankenstein universe. Regardless of he how we feel about what we bring into the world, this novel says, once it's out there, it will take on a life of its own. Victor Frankenstein is a brilliant guy. He invents something amazing. But unlike the god of Genesis, he completely ignores the moral responsibility a creator owes to his creation. So I leave you to ponder this idea today. Is St. Olaf College paradise or the fallen world? What do you think? Go home and think about that. Both Eden and the real world, however, have a whole lot of creation going on. Creating things takes brain power, and we celebrate that here at St. Olaf. But Shelley's novel reminds us that the heart also needs to be part of the equation. 
That's what the St. Olaf mission statement means when it focuses on what is ultimately worthwhile and fosters the development of the whole person in body, mind, and spirit. St. Olaf aspires to stimulate students' critical thinking, but also to heighten their moral sensitivity. So, if Victor Frankenstein had been an Oli, might he have been a better father to his monster? I think that he still would have been disappointed when the monster came to life, and he still could not have foreseen the consequences of his creation. Of the three fiction universes we visited today, only one offers a happy ending. The fiction universe depicts a fallen world because that is the real world in which writers and readers live. In today's times of high college tuitions and tough job markets, there's lots of talk about practical college majors. I submit there's no better place you can go to prepare for the real world than the fiction universe. I give my last words today to writer Adam Gopnik in a New Yorker essay titled, Why Teach English? Rhetorical question. Gopnik writes, we need the humanities not because they will produce shrewder entrepreneurs or kinder CEOs, but because they help us enjoy life more and endure it better. The reason we need the humanities is because we're human. That's enough. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Diana, for the um, entry you afforded us into Diana Puzzlethwaite's universe <laughs> and for an engaging and inspiring opening address. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand as you are able so that we can sing the college hymn and then to remain standing for the benediction and the recessional. So let's stand and sing from from.
May God bless you and keep you. May God's grace and love always be with you. And may you walk in God's peace. Amen.